The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, I am delighted to welcome a colleague, a fellow registered dietitian, Brenda Davis. She is an expert leader in her field in the areas of vegetarianism, veganism, raw food diets, and diabetes. And so we're going to be touching on all three of those topics in our conversation. But I just want you also to know that she is working on a diabetes intervention project in Majuro in the Marshall Islands, which we will talk about. She has worked as a public health nutritionist, a clinical nutrition specialist, a nutrition consultant, and academic nutrition instructor. In July of 2007, she was inducted into the Vegetarian Hall of Fame, and she is also a past chair of the Vegetarian Nutrition Practice Group of the American Dietetic Association, now called the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. She is also the author of eight books. So when I say that she's an expert in vegetarian nutrition, Nutrition. She most certainly is, and she's been recognized by her colleagues internationally. So, Brenda, welcome. Oh, thank you so much, Melinda. It's great to be here. Well, I had to kind of narrow down the topics that we would talk about today, but I thought the ones that would be most interested to our listeners really fell into three areas that you've written about. The first, of course, is vegetarianism and becoming vegan. And the second is about raw vegan diets, which are popular from time to time. And then the third has to do with your research on the Marshall Islands, which really has to do with reversing diabetes. And I think that probably will interest many, many of our listeners. So first, just a little bit about you. You told me before the show that you have been a vegan since 1989. So Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I've been very close to vegan since then and probably 100% vegan for about 10 or 12 years now. So what is it to be a vegan? Well, being a vegan just means that you're you're really trying as much as possible and it's not, to be honest, entirely possible, but as much as possible and practical to remove the products of animals from your diet and lifestyle. And so for me, it's just about contributing to pain, suffering and death as little as possible and it's also a way of making a little bit of a, a smaller footprint uh, on the planet. And I think that it is very conducive to good health as well. Yeah, I was trying to think of all the reasons people have given me over the years. And I should just let you know that I'm an omnivore. So <laughs> our listeners can know that they're hearing two dietitians with two different eating patterns. But I absolutely respect vegetarian and vegan lifestyles, I think that they certainly do contribute to much improved health. We know that plant-based diets are extremely protective when it comes to chronic disease prevention. And I want to tap into some of the discoveries of, of why that is with you. But the reasons why people choose vegetarian or vegan diets is indeed, as you mentioned, you know, you don't want to contribute to suffering of animals. The climate... Right, and I just would add... Uh, that, that, you know, it's, it's interesting when you look. You can have a very healthy dietary pattern, whether you're vegan or vegetarian or omnivorous. You can construct a healthy diet. And for people that 
that take that bigger step to become completely vegetarian or vegan is often about more than just health. And so they start to look at animals and ecology and just all of those things come into play. Right. And the climate. I'm glad that you mentioned the climate piece because that's another big factor for why people have moved more towards a plant-based diet, whether or not they go all the way to become vegans or perhaps they're lacto-ovo-vegetarians or pescatarians where they introduce maybe fish or maybe some eggs or dairy into their diet. Right, and your your listeners might be interested to know that in 2008, an award-winning environmental study actually showed that you could reduce greenhouse gas emissions more by eating vegan one day a week than by eating 100% local seven days a week. Oh, that is very interesting. Yes, it's quite interesting. So it it really does. Of course, the lower on the food chain you're eating, the the less resources are consumed. So even if you can only eat vegan for uh, one day a week or one meal a day, <laughs> yeah, it makes quite a difference. Well, and I like that approach, too. It's sort of like the Meatless Monday campaign that, right. that we had here in the United States. And I should let our listeners know if they detect a slight, a delightful accent, that would be because you're based in British Columbia. That's right. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit then about the vegan diet first. And, you know, the idea that you know, we worry, oh, we might not be getting enough protein or we might be short on minerals that we would get from animal products. How do you describe eating healthfully when we are omitting a food group? Yeah, and it's interesting because in all honesty, we're not really omitting a food group. Mm -hmm. We, you know, because when you think about it, when you think about the food groups, they're a little bit arbitrary the meat group actually also includes all sorts of legumes and soy products and those kinds of foods that are also rich in protein, iron, and zinc. The milk group also now contains, you know, at least in Canada, the fortified soy milks and other calcium-rich options. So certainly what you need to do is you need to recognize that your calcium isn't going to be coming from dairy products, your protein isn't going to be coming from meat or your iron or your zinc. So you need to find non-animal sources of those nutrients, and you still need to meet the RDA for all of your nutrients. And so it's just so many of our resources for nutrition education are geared to omnivores. You need to stretch out a little bit and, and look at the resources that are available for vegans to ensure things like vitamin B12, even things like iodine, can be a little more tricky when you're doing a vegan diet. Mm -hmm. I appreciate that correction. Thank you. And I also want to just let our listeners know, I'm sitting here with your book, Becoming Vegan Express Edition, The Everyday Guide to Plant-Based Nutrition. And I just want to let everyone know that if you're entertaining the thought of moving towards a more plant-based or you'd like to have one vegan meal at least once a week, this is a wonderful resource. And I really like the way you talk about different conditions. You know, if you're pregnant or lactating, if you're a teenager, if you're a child, all kinds of special health needs. But early on in the book, you say something that is quite interesting. You say that Mike Tyson, the famous fighter, Mike <laughs> Tyson, a man who once chewed on a human ear, is now vegan. Is that right? Well, it is actually. And what's really interesting is vegan has really become mainstream. There are so many of these sort of powerful voices that are now vegan. Bill Clinton and 
Mort Zuckerman and John Mackey and Joey Ito and Steve Wynn and Biz Stone, and it just goes on and on and on. It's definitely more mainstream than it ever was in the past. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that you mentioned different kinds of studies. We've, we've got the one, certainly, we've got many actually looking at climate change. But we have studies looking at longevity and reduction of risk for chronic disease also by choosing a more, well, you don't have to be a vegan. Just choosing a more plant-based diet is absolutely protective. But I'm sure you're familiar with data on longevity as well. Do you have anything that you'd like to share about that? Oh, absolutely. It's really, really interesting when you start to look around the world. What we know is that every single blue zone on the planet, and blue zones are places where people live really long lives, but they're healthy at the end stage of life. And uh, every single blue zone is plant-based. None of them are 100% vegan, but they're all very, very plant-based eaters. And so, but we do actually have a lot of research now comparing vegans, lacto-ovo vegetarians, semi-vegetarians, fish eaters, and meat eaters in terms of longevity and cancer risk and heart disease risk and kidney disease risk and so forth. And what we found is that generally vegetarians have a lower overall mortality, about 5% lower. And in fact, uh, vegans, the Adventist Health Study 2 in 2013 uh, just released the findings that vegans actually have a 15% uh, reduced mortality. So generally, the Seventh-day Adventist studies provide us with a lot of information because within the Adventist community, you have the whole range of dietary patterns, but people tend to live similar lifestyles. They're all active. They don't drink alcohol and so on and so on. And even controlling for all of these factors, men who are Adventist vegetarians live about 10 years, nine and a half, 10 years longer than non-vegetarian men and women about six years longer. So quite interesting. We do have some data on that for sure. And do you know what that extension in life is attributed to exactly? Generally, it's attributed to a healthier diet, eating more fruits and vegetables, eating fewer of the foods that are known to contribute to disease. But these studies are controlled for exercise levels and so forth. So I would say they're probably people are getting more antioxidants, more fiber, more of these protective components in their diet, and fewer of the components that we know tend to contribute to chronic disease. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let's talk about phytochemicals because you are certainly an expert in these. Let's let our listeners know, first of all, what are phytochemicals? Well, phytochemicals, phyto really just is is a word that means plant. So phytochemicals are just uh, plant chemicals. And it's interesting because these plant chemicals, it's, you know, they're really in plants to protect the plants. They're they're not there to, to really help people necessarily, but they do. They're responsible for all of the things like the color and flavor and texture and odor and all of these qualities that plants have. And they even play a role in sort of attracting pollinators and seed dispersers and all of that stuff. They are the plant's internal defense system against all of these pests and and hostile environments that plants naturally live in. And so usually the worse the conditions for the plants, the, the greater the phytochemical army becomes. And uh, it's it's quite interesting. These these compounds are very protective to people too. They just they just help block tumor formation, and they're antioxidants. They're anti-estrogenic. They're anti-inflammatory. They 
you know, just have all kinds of protective qualities. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you probably share a similar thought that I do when you go into a natural food store, right? And we have one in our community, and it's so interesting. Half of the store is filled with supplements, right? and the other half is filled with food. And I always want to just shake my head and think, you've got all the nutrients you need in the food section. (laughs) So, I mean, largely, granted, you know, there are some people who need supplements, and we can talk a little bit about which ones you think are most important, say, for someone on on an extremely limited diet or someone maybe who's not eating a certain food, they might want to take a supplement. But largely, by getting our nutrients from food, wouldn't you agree that the advantage is with whole foods and not trying to? Yeah, and it's interesting. We have so much research on that. It's not even a question mark, really. Yeah. We know that these chemicals that are found in plants, many of them sort of act synergistically with one another. And when you isolate one, it can actually be problematic because they they work in conjunction with one another. And so we, we have not had good results looking at uh, providing people with supplements that are concentrated sources of one or two or whatever of these phytochemicals. In in fact, it often backfires. And I think that just it makes common sense. It does. Uh, you need to get these things from foods. Yes. Simple. And how foolish we are to think that we have it all figured out, right? I mean, isn't that... Oh, we are so far from that. (laughs) Yeah, and that's part of the joy, I think, of being in this profession, is that every day, it seems, we're learning something new. We are at the halfway mark, so I need to just let our listeners know that we are speaking with Brenda Davis. She is a leader in her field and an esteemed popular speaker in the area of vegetarian and vegan diets. She is a past chairperson of the Vegetarian Nutrition Practice Group of the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, and in 2007, she was inducted into the Vegetarian Hall of Fame. And we are talking about three particular areas of expertise that you have, and I've got two of your books in front of me. One is called Becoming Vegan, the Express Edition, the Everyday Guide to Plant-Based Nutrition, and the other is Becoming Raw, the Essential Guide to Raw Vegan Diets. And the third area that I want to speak about is has to do with a book that you wrote about diabetes. In fact, Defeating Diabetes is the title, and it has to do with your work in the Marshall Islands. So before we get to the Marshall Islands, let me quickly just touch on the raw food component. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what it is about raw food diets that is so attractive to people. One of the things about raw food diets is they're just generally very clean diets. You know, when you cook foods, you can produce things like heterocyclic amines or polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons and advanced glycation end products and acrylamide and all of these things that are potential carcinogens. And so you remove that. You also remove instantly all of the processed foods that are loaded with fat, sugar, and salt to make people want to eat more of them. So you're removing all of that. So the diet tends to be really clean and it's it's based on fruits and vegetables and nuts and seeds and sprouted foods and it's got a lot of probiotics and prebiotics and so it's really a very very healing diet it's a very clean way of eating Uh, the problem with raw food diets is of course you are eliminating more foods and therefore your risk of nutritional deficiencies can increase and so for people that are using a raw food diet to uh, reverse uh, heart disease or diabetes or something like that 
Uh, the results are really quite dramatic. But when it's used over a long period of time, people do need to be really conscious about where their vitamin B12 is coming from, where their protein's coming from, where their iron's coming from. So it's just a little trickier as you get sort of stricter and stricter. What I hear people say when they have chosen to go on a raw food diet, one of the reasons is that they are trying to have live foods and they are looking for these enzymes that are in right. vegetables. And I, I wonder, can you, what would you say to somebody who has that idea? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting and the, the whole enzyme discussion or controversy is very interesting because in the mainstream world and in dietetics and in medicine, we learn that enzymes in foods are of little consequence to human health because they're digested by the stomach acid and therefore they are useless to helping us to digest food. Right. In the raw food world, food enzymes are really believed to be the reason why you need to eat raw, <laughs> you know, like the most important component that food has to offer. And so it's this huge, huge difference in the way that we look at and approach food enzymes. And so when I wrote this, when Vasanto and I wrote this, Becoming Raw, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out what was truth and what was lie when it came to food enzymes. And I contacted experts from around the world. And to boil it down for you, basically, food enzymes are of little consequence where digestion is concerned. Although food is held in the upper part of the stomach for probably 20 to 60 minutes where food enzymes, the pH at that part of the stomach is actually quite conducive to the functioning of enzymes. So the enzymes can work a little bit. But in terms of overall digestion, their, their impact is, is actually probably really, really small. However, Food enzymes do have some other uses, and one of the most interesting that I found was that some food enzymes are actually responsible for converting phytochemicals into their active forms. So, for example, there's an enzyme in cruciferous vegetables like broccoli and cabbage and cauliflower called myrosinase, and myrosinase converts certain things called glucosinolates into isothiocyanates, which are the active form which help to induce enzyme systems that detoxify carcinogens. So it's really, really important that some of these enzymes be present in food and there's alanase and allium vegetables that, that does the same thing, converting allin to allicin. And so these are really important functions of enzymes. If you cook foods, you slowly these enzymes will be degraded and you'll get less of that very valuable conversion. And so what it means is that you're wanting to consume at least some foods raw. And if you're cooking the foods, you're wanting to limit cooking time because the longer the cooking time, the more you destroy these things. And so it makes sense to chew your foods well, to cook lightly if you're cooking, and to include some raw foods in your diet. Well, I need to just give this book a huge plug because of the research that's gone into it. And so just for our listeners to know, the title is Becoming Raw, The Essential Guide to Raw Vegan Diets. And I think if you're looking for one book to put on your shelf that really answers in depth, the research that you've done to create this book is really terrific. And you've also okay. got menus and recipes, which are 
a wonderful addition always. Okay, we have to talk about your Marshall Island research because I think it ties in with the two concepts of eating raw and eating vegan. But you went to the Marshall Islands, and I could not believe how high the prevalence of diabetes was there. And for our listeners, we should let them know where the Marshall Islands are, right? Because most of us don't know. But am I correct to say they're halfway between, is it Australia and Hawaii? Yes. Okay. Precisely. All right. So tell me how you got to the Marshall Islands, what you discovered, and what you did. Well, you know, I I wrote this book, Defeating Diabetes, and Actually, a mission team called Canvasback Missions got a U.S. government grant to do some research on diabetes in the Marshall Islands. The diabetes rates, probably about 50% of the adults have diabetes, and I would estimate that 90% have either diabetes or or prediabetes. So it's very prevalent. And the shocking thing is probably 70 years ago, nobody had diabetes. Right. And that was when they lived off the land, and now they live off processed foods. And so the rates of, for people that have lived off the land for generations, they get these chronic diseases um, more rapidly than what we would. And so very, very sad situation. Their typical breakfast is donuts and coffee. Children love uh, ramen noodles with Kool-Aid powder sprinkled on top. They eat white rice, white sticky rice with a glycemic index of about 87 for dinner and uh, lunch meals with some sort of meat on top usually fatty meat, spam, these kinds of things. And they wash it all down with this beverage called luau, which number one ingredient is high fructose corn syrup. It would actually be difficult to design a diet to induce diabetes any better than the diet these people have adopted. How did these foods that are so, I don't even want to call them food, you know, we put them in our bodies, we think they're nourishing or they're maybe relieving a hunger but they certainly aren't nourishing us. How did those despicable items get on those islands? That's a, it's just a very, very sad story, but they are um, foods that, that have good storage shelf life. Mm-hmm. And, of course, you know, when you're shipping food by boat, the food has to last. So it's, you know, sometimes it takes a month to get foods there. So they would pick very stable foods and foods that were packaged and processed and cheap. The people there are very poor, and there's not a lot of refrigeration, so so they just don't get fresh food. Now, when they were living off the land, they had foodways that sustained them. Is there any kind of gardening going on on the island? Are there any farms? I know it's small. I should let people know that. Is it 70 square miles? The Marshall Islands are 70 square miles total? Yes, all total for 1,200 islands. So the main island that we were working on is about 3.7 square miles for 30,000 people. Wow. So, yeah, there's not a lot of place to grow things. And what people need to understand, a lot of people say, well, they should just go back to living how they did. Well, that island that's 3.7 square miles might might be able to sustain 500 people. There are 30,000 people there. They have to import food. Yeah. Uh, there's no there's no other way. It's just how do we get healthy food imported is is the bigger question now. And yes, there are gardens and you know, I did a research study where we were doing very aggressive lifestyle intervention which included teaching people to garden even if they had to use grow boxes. So when we we actually have produce planted all over the hospital yard and you know just yeah. trying to plant wherever you can plant. 
but yeah, it's it's a very very challenging situation. Well, you started out with a six week program intervention, and then you realized that what you you could have benefit in three weeks. And I just want actually six months and three months. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, yeah, no problem. Six <laughs> months and then three months. But yep. the startling results that you achieved were, I mean, my mouth was hanging open when I saw people who had been on insulin no longer needing insulin. People receiving high blood pressure medication, they went off of their medication. What did you do? Well, you know, we did basically a plant-based diet that was, I guess I should say, first of all, is that one of the mistakes that I think we make in treating diabetes is we treat just the elevated blood glucose. Mm-hmm. And the way that I look at it is we need to treat what is causing the diabetes, the chronic inflammation, the oxidative stress, the endothelial dysfunction, because they're still making plenty of insulin. We need to help the insulin to work again. And so in order to do that, you've got to look at the overweight, the overeating, the lack of sleep, the unhealthy gut flora, the bad nutrition, the problems with hormonal imbalances. So our diet design was really geared to address all of those things. So it was plant-based. It was very high in fiber. And you can imagine these people were eating about five grams of fiber before we came along. And going from five to about 50 makes a little bit of a difference. Very low glycemic load, uh, minimal refined carbs, a, a moderate fat. And the fat they were eating was really healthy fat coming from things like nuts and seeds, very high phytochemicals, very high antioxidants, very moderate in sodium and saturated fat, no trans fatty acids whatsoever. And so we were really designing the diet to restore insulin sensitivity. Mm-hmm. Well, your effects that you had there on the islands, and you're still going back as I understand, right? Yes. The effects that you've had there have been phenomenal. Where is most of the food imported from? Food gets imported from Australia, from China, from the United States. So it's imported from from everywhere, depending on the stores and their sources. But some gets gets imported from other islands as well. Mm-hmm. Well, just so people know, you know what we saw normally in the first week of the program was drops in fasting blood sugars of you know a hundred or more points quite often. You know the A1Cs would drop by three months, a couple of points, uh, very, very consistently. The um, CRP drop a point or two fairly consistently within the first couple of weeks, and we would maintain that by uh, 12 weeks. And you know, a lot of people say to me, well, could this program work at home? And the answer that I always have is that if this program can work in the Marshall Islands, we have no excuses at home. The barriers that they face are so much greater than ours. They don't have fitness facilities. They don't even have places to walk. They don't have trails. They don't have any of that stuff. Produce is super expensive. It's very limited. They have so many barriers, and yet they managed. For us, it would be a breeze relative to what it is in the Marshall Islands. Our 30 minutes, unfortunately, is (laughs) up. But I am going to have to have you back. Just oh, I would think, be delighted. I probably shouldn't have tried to cover three different books, but we'll need to leave it at that. You've given us great hope for change possible through dietary changes, simple ones, really, tweaking our diet to be more vegetarian-based, 
as a good start. I want to remind our listeners that we have been speaking with Brenda Davis. She is the author of eight books, but we've been focusing on Becoming Raw, Becoming Vegan, and Defeating Diabetes. I want to close by letting our listeners know that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia. We will provide the website link for Brenda Davis so you can learn more about her research on the Marshall Islands and you can look at her vegan information as well. Brenda, thank you so much for being my guest. Oh, thank you so much, Melinda. It was my pleasure. Mm-hmm.